I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So in this episode, we want to talk about something that is uh, it's pretty pretty near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, definitely Jason's. Jason's been in this business for a while. Um, we want to talk about cardiogenic shock. Um, this is you don't uh, have to keep you don't have to keep saying that. That's been in this a while. Yeah, I get it. I, well, it's you know it's Since the 1900s. It's a respect thing. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> it's a term of endearment, right? Yeah. Um. So, uh. But, but yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a cool uh a cool opportunity to talk about something that, uh, that can spawn off into several conversations. You know, we can have several episodes on topics that are related to cardiogenic shock. So what do you think about just maybe introducing like surface level, just kind of diving into it a little bit? Yeah. You know, cardiogenic shock is, I think it's just one of those difficult things because it's something that's not seen very often. It's something that's that's pretty rare. It's not something that we come into contact every day with. Um, but it's something that is just so devastating, but I mean, that's a lot of what we deal with in EMS. Um, you know, these low volume, high risk things, um, with really any, uh, any topic that we want to talk about, whether it be trauma, peds, stroke, anything neuro. Um, but then of course, cardiology, which is a lot, a large portion of what we do in EMS and, and really in emergency medicine and emergency cardiac care. But, um, you know, cardiogenic shock is just something that um, it, it just doesn't present itself very often, but when it does, it can be absolutely devastating. And I think that's the thing that um, I guess, uh, you know, as as you and I have kind of moved in our career more towards this emergency cardiac care and get to understand this and appreciate it a little bit better, um, you know, it really becomes nuanced and we have to really think about cardiogenic shock differently. And I know, you know, we've done some other stuff with, with fluids and pressors, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, but, um, you know, when it comes to cardiogenic shock, uh, I think we just have to change the way that we think, um, with it, uh, how we approach it, how we diagnose it, uh, and really then how we treat it. Yeah. And, and this is something that I've appreciated that you've been teaching for a while now, is that, you know, we can look for things in EMS and in emergency medicine like STEMI. We can look for things like hemorrhagic shock. I mean, th th those things are pretty obvious. Um, and perhaps this is something that we can start looking for. And maybe EMS can make a pretty big difference in this, not necessarily in the definitive treatment, but the identification. Yeah, and that's really timely um, that we're talking about this now because finally, and I say finally because I think those of us in EMS have been um, not only preaching this forever, but really don't understand or haven't been able to really understand why it's been so difficult to kind of bridge this gap between EMS um, and the hospitals. But then even within the hospitals, it's difficult to bridge the gap between emergency medicine and specialty care, or um, even within specialty care, talking about between specialist and subspecialist, you know, cardiologists and then interventional cardiologists or interventional cardiologists and colleagues that treat cardiogenic shock. Um, you know, the treatment can be, uh, can be different depending on the stage of shock that they're in or the level that they're in. Um, but recently, uh, and, and really within the last few months, um, 
there has been there is starting to be a rather large shift of under of of uh, hospitals understanding uh, and specialists understanding the importance of EMS, not only just the treatment they that uh, they provide, but the uh, recognition, the diagno diagnosis of shock or the anticipation of shock, and being able to start certain therapies or withhold certain therapies in some cases, um, but even more importantly, start to direct that patient to the correct center that can uh, treat shock at the highest level. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's something that I really hope that we can convey and that we can uh, lay out for our listeners, because just being transparent about this, um, whenever I was on a truck, I could tell when a patient was sick. But, you know, unless they are obviously bleeding right in front of me, that's when you really have to start using some some sleuthing here. And I remember appreciating the difficulty between trying to determine, like, dude, is this sepsis? Is this cardiogenic shock? Like what? Because whenever I was whenever I went through school and I'm not knocking my instructors, I'm just I'm just saying I don't think that cardiogenic shock was as much on the radar then as it is now. So I wasn't really propped up to to be looking for that quite as much. So yeah, I agree. And I think even, you know, as as you know, we've been instructors and and um, you know, as you go through a lot of these different modules, I think at the initial education level, there's just a lot of boxes to be checked. So you're mm -hmm. in this, you know, you're in your section of what whatever, cardiology or, you know, um, uh, you know, medical, what you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're in neuro, maybe you're in uh, trauma. And we kind of just kind of give this overarching definition of shock. Mm -hmm. We just say shock is this, but I'm not so sure we spend enough time or enough understanding of the different types of shock, being able to diagnose the type of shock and how the nuances of those treatments may be. And then again, um, I don't think we do a good enough job um, in uh, education at all about necessarily how do we direct the patients there. You know, we know in hypovolemic shock from trauma, we know exactly where that that patient needs to be, and we know the exact treatment for that patient. I mean, that patient needs to go to a trauma center, and they need to be in surgery. I mean, those are really the only places uh, that that patient needs to be. But when it comes to other forms of shock, maybe we don't we don't appreciate uh, the differences in the types of that. And we think, oh, all hospitals are the same, all doctors are the same, all programs are the same. Um, and we're really starting to see now uh, pre-hospital being brought into these discussions as part of, um, you know, of a shock team. We can talk more about that uh, in a little bit, that this really does take an entire team that starts with the pre-hospital. You know, this is, the, these patients live or die, or can live or die uh, based on the treatment and the diagnosis in the pre-hospital setting, by the time they get to the where definitive care is going to occur, it may be too late. Yeah. And, and like you said before, I just want to kind of echo what you said. This is such a rare occurrence that it's honestly kind of, it's it's a little concerning whenever you do catch it, whenever you're Whenever it creeps up on, you know, like I said before, you can tell something is hemorrhagic shock. You typically have a mechanism that goes along with it, but cardiogenic shock, so rare. I mean, you know, are there any numbers that really dictate how often we see this in the field that you know of? 
Yeah, well, we're only seeing cardiogenic shock. The true diagnosis of cardiogenic shock somewhere between nine, ten, eleven percent of all of all STEMIs. Now, those are mm. those are you know what we we call um, AMI you know, amicus or AMICS. It's AMI with cardiogenic shock. So you know STEMIs, AMIs. We're talking about. Um, I don't remember the exact number. We're talking about somewhere in the 400,000 um, range in the United States every year. And then cardiogenic shock from that um, constitutes about nine to 11% or, you know, somewhere in there. But um, we see, we uh, see cardiogenic shock in other things. In fact, non-STEMIs, and I don't mean, you know, not, I mean the diagnosis of non-STEMI, not, not a, uh, oh, they're having chest pain. Their EKG doesn't show a STEMI. So we called it a non-STEMI. Um, we, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the, the clinical definition of a non-STEMI with, you know, troponin mm -hmm. uh, bumps and, and that kind of stuff. So those patients can go into cardiogenic shock, acute heart failure, acute on chronic heart failure can go in, uh, um, long-term heart failure. There's a lot of different things, uh, that can cause cardiogenic shock. And now even, you know, um, EMS is being called upon more and more for interfacility transfers, um, and these patients, uh, you know, some of these transfers can be, you know, hours away, uh, and that can be, you know, by ground or by air. And, and these patients have to be managed, um, you know, just as expertly in between facilities as they may uh, going to the initial facility. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that to say, um, let's kind of, if you don't mind, let's dive in and talk about uh, the, the differences between the, the the patho and cardiogenic shock and the other forms of shock. You know, I know that on the basic surface level, we know that there are three problems. There's a vessel problem, pump problem, or a volume problem. Um, but in your words, you know, you always do a decent, a really good job of like, of explaining the difference between the hemorrhagic spiral of death versus the cardiogenic spiral of death. Um because there is a spiral on both sides, but they are quite different. You, do you mind walking us through that? Yeah. So the, you know, like you, like you said about the, the hemorrhagic um, death spiral, you know, that's the one that we've seen in every textbook from, you know, baby EMTs up through, uh, you know, I don't know, probably trauma surgeons have the same, you know, the same, the same kind of looks like a little, uh, a spiral, that little tornado where you start to hemorrhage and then, your uh, blood pressure drops, which makes your heart rate go up, which makes more blood, uh, you know, leaking out, which makes your blood pressure drop, which makes, you know, you have to compensate for that. And all the, co the compensatory mechanism is going to cause uh, more blood uh, to, uh, to come out. And so you just start in this spiral. But, you know, with hemorrhagic shock, there's a lot more predictions that we can make on how where they are in this spiral how fast they're going to go down this spiral um you know if you have someone with um uh you know an, an abdominal a blunt abdominal uh hemorrhage that you can't see uh and you know their blood pressure is is 60 right away you know they don't have much time you know they're gonna mm -hmm. they're gonna be spiraling down uh pretty quickly but if you have someone perhaps with a gi bleed or something that may not be an active you know massive exsanguination uh we can kind of anticipate these but we you know so we already do this so this is kind of um you know we can't see all of the bleeding so we have to take you have to make certain assumptions or we have to make certain um you know determinations based on pathophysiology if it's something a rigid abdomen or something bleeding into the chest or um you know bleeding somewhere else we can make predictions about uh you know a femoral artery 
that is bleeding versus uh, you know a smaller artery. So we can we can kind of take these uh, these models of hemorrhagic shock and can make uh, you know some predictions. Also, you know, very very often hemorrhagic shock when it comes to trauma is in uh, younger people. You know, we do know mm. that, uh, you know, motor vehicle accidents and, and blunt trauma and some penetrating trauma, you know, this is what kills young people, but it's killing young people that are otherwise healthy. Um, so we're not dealing with a history of how well, how well are they able to compensate? We can make certain assumptions and certain uh, assumptions about, um, about how well they're able to compensate. When it comes to cardiogenic shock, we can't. Because with cardiogenic shock, history is so important. You know, if you take somebody that's, that that uh, is in cardiogenic shock and they have an ejection fraction of thirty percent or of twenty percent, they're not. You know, they're they're going to kind of go down this spiral a whole lot faster. So there's a little bit more, I think, a little bit more history taking and a little bit more understanding of the pathophysiology that is happening in the patient even before they went into cardiogenic shock. Uh, on how well they're able to compensate. And so, you know, we talk about, uh, for instance, with kids, you know, we know that kids often present uh, fairly stable. Well, they're only stable because they're able to compensate so well. Um, you know, we don't see that in necessarily in uh, in patients with uh, acute heart failure. Sometimes with the acute on chronic or on the uh, yeah, the acute on chronic heart failure uh, can become a little bit different. But all these patients have to be treated a little bit differently. So like you said about kind of being a sleuth, it's not a, a, a one size fits all. Um, also, when it comes to cardiogenic shock, we don't always know if it's, um, you know, what the ejection fraction is, what the what the volume status is. When it comes to hemorrhagic shock, um, you know, we can we can do uh, blood replacement, uh, plasma replacement. You know, we can we can really we can treat these patients uh, because we know what the problem is. It's not doesn't mean that it's an easy problem to fix, but at least we really kind of know what the problem is. When it comes right. to the other forms of shock, you know, it can be different. And the way that a patient presents with cardiogenic versus septic versus neuro uh, neurogenic shock, you know, the, these are the things that in cardiology becomes somewhat easy for us because we know it's card you know if we're getting if cardiologists are being called they know it's cardiogenic shock um for pre-hospital and emergency medicine you have to kind of sort this stuff out so kind of understanding the pathophysiology uh becomes just really really important yeah absolutely and that's that that is something that um that I had to appreciate was really having to understand the hemodynamics of the heart and, you know, what is an LVEDP? Like what is left ventricular end diastolic pressure? What, you know, and so uh, your classes that you've taught before on that are, are really good at clearing that up. If you don't mind, you know, explain to the listeners what exactly that is and, you know, under normal conditions and then whenever it causes problems um, and how it is essentially the problem in cardiogenic shock. Yeah. And so this is why I think as we kind of dig deeper into this, and I think we, you know, simplifying shock is really important because at, you know, you know, the, the, the cliches, well, at two o'clock in the morning, when you've been out running calls all day, you, you're, you're not really able to kind of have the time 
um, nor the tools or anything to really kind of dig deep into what type of shock they're in, what's causing it. Is it systolic? Is it diastolic? Or it doesn't, does it, uh, you know, does it even matter? So we kind of simplify it, I think appropriately so. Like you said, we have the three, is it a, is it a pump volume or container, um, container problem? And when we simplify that, um, that's good, but it doesn't really tell us the whole story. So I think we've got to take, so we that's take right. cardiogenic shock. It's a pump problem, mm-hmm. but the, what's causing the pump to fail actually becomes more of the problem. And so, yeah, the pump is failing, but one of the reasons the pump is failing is because we're not getting enough perfusion to the pump itself. Um, and you know, I think that's an important distinction when it comes to cardiogenic shock. So if we can understand a little bit better on the pathophysiology of what's actually causing the pump to fail, then, uh, how we treat it and more importantly, maybe the treatment that we shouldn't do become a little bit more clear. So as your heart, um, squeezes, as, as we get systole, um, we have to fill the coronary arteries with, uh, with blood and with oxygen, right? I mean, obviously that's, and it's the most important part. The heart is is uh, very sensitive to that, does not do well without blood flow. Well, if you think of the left ventricle kind of as a sponge, not the left ventricle, not the ventricle as it squeezes out blood, but the myocardium itself. As systole occurs and as the heart squeezes, there's a lot of pressure um, on that myocardium. No blood flow can occur during systole down into the myocardium because it's like squeezing a sponge. You can't fill up a sponge as it's being squeezed. So the only way you can um, fill up a sponge is you have to let the ventricle and the myocardium completely relax during diastole. And then so during diastole, now that myocardium can be filled with blood. Anything that is going to compress that myocardium at any time is going to prevent blood flow from going down the myocardium. Any prevention of blood flow going down the myocardium is going to cause it to be ischemic, it's going to cause it to fail, and it's going to cause this spiral to go down more and more. So it's a really not an easy concept to understand, especially as we're just kind of describing it. But again, if we think about the the myocardium can only fill on diastole. Um, So like a sponge, if you're going to fill up a sponge, you're going to squeeze it completely, that's systole. But to fill up the sponge again, you have to let it completely relax, and that's diastole. So during diastole, you need to have almost no wall pressure on the myocardium at all so that blood can fill that myocardium. Um, any decrease in coronary blood flow is going to cause heart failure. It's going to cause, and it's going to cause cardiac arrest. That's actually what causes cardiac arrest, um, decrease coronary perfusion. Um, and so what you, you know, we had mentioned left ventricular and diastolic pressure, you know, that, that we can kind of get in the weeds a little bit with that, but really what we're asking is what is that pressure at the very end of diastole? Because we want that pressure to be really as low as possible. Not really as low as possible. We don't want it to be zero. We want it to be about eight or 10 millimeters of mercury. So when you say at the end of diastole, do you mean like right before systole? Right before systole. At the very end, the maximum diastole, the maximum that your sponge is going to be relaxed to be able to fill all those capillaries with blood. At that very moment, we can measure that pressure. 
Mm. We want that pressure to be essentially as low as possible. We want we want very little um, stress on that myocardium so that it can fill with blood. What ends up happening in cardiogenic shock is um, as that muscle starts to die uh, from, say, a STEMI, it's just not contracting very well. As it's not contracting, it gets stiff, it gets hardened, it's not compliant. So that wall is not moving um, in and out freely. It's not compressing and relaxing freely. It's kind of stiffening up. And as it stiffens up, no blood flow can get down there. As no blood flow can get into the myocardium, now we have heart failure and now we have, uh, now we have cardiogenic shock and we are now starting down that shock spiral. Um, so I think the question becomes, um, not only, you know, how to treat this. I think that's, you know, that's, we can spend a lot of time and we have spent some time on how to treat this, but I think probably more importantly, how do we recognize that this is happening or can we make a prediction or an assumption that it is about to happen? Absolutely. I, I think that's that a, a long-winded explanation. No, that was perfect, man. And I think that's a good segue into, uh, proposing, you know, some, some episodes following this, you know, we can, um, just to make this digestible because it's not, it's not an easy concept. I mean, I'm speaking for myself. Um, this was not an easy concept for me to wrap my mind around, you know, learning all the different pressures and learning, um, essentially what, uh, what we're talking about. Um, I think it would be good to talk about how to recognize it and then classify it and then come back and talk about some treatments some mechanical treatments, some um, chemical treatments and things like that. Yeah. So I think one of the problems that we've dealt with with shock is um, our definition. You know, the the official definition of shock is a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 for like more than like greater than 30 minutes. <laughs> um, that's, uh, you know, that's almost like saying, well, the definition of a house fire is when the flames go through the roof. That's right. <laughs> that's when we're going to do something like, no, there's a whole lot going on there before we saw, you know, before we could see it from the outside, there was a the de lot The going definition on of there. being sick is when you call the coroner. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, if we think about this with like um, hypovolemic shock or, or more specifically hemorrhagic shock, you know, we talk about things like mechanism of injury. We talk about things like high index of suspicion. You know, if you're, you're in a, a head-on uh, car wreck at, uh, you know, 80 miles an hour, there should be something wrong. I mean, just knowing that that happened, there's likely going to be something wrong. So even if someone is out walking around going, no, I'm fine. Like, well, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't really make sense. We think, you know, something, something is wrong. We need to get, you know, we need to get checked out. And so we, you know, we do these things and we, you know, this is one of the reasons that we teach blood pressure every five minutes. So we can, we can start to trend these things, you know, is a blood pressure of 120 normal? Well, if you suspect shock and it was 180 and then 170 and then 160, and then now it's 120, I think we have a problem. Now, 120 by itself seems to be okay, but when we trend it over time, and so we have these high index of suspicion with things like hemorrhagic shock because there's something visible uh, and something tangible that we can point to objectively to say, there's probably something going on because of what I can see, or I'm suspecting certain things because of the way that a patient is presenting. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so there was a group, um, at, um, society for cardiac angiography and intervention, um, or a group, uh, sky, 
uh, which most of our many of the interventional cardiologists in the country and around the world is an organization, uh, society that they belong to. And there was an offshoot of this uh, called Sky Shock. So it's uh, part of Sky that's strictly looking at shock. And in 2019, they uh, got a group together, probably 2018, uh, they got a group together to say, you know, could we could we put this is is it are we able to put these in stages so that we can kind of hmm. anticipate certain things rather than waiting for the flames to be for through the roof and then say, oh, now your house is on fire. If we could see that, uh, oh, somebody uh, just walked in with uh, in the house with uh, a, a, uh, some gasoline and some matches like that should be the first oh yeah. well, wait a minute this isn't this isn't normal we should we should start to at least keep an eye on this right. um and then we see him light a match and like oh okay this is this is getting a little but but we have to wait we have to wait till the flames are through the roof for at least 30 <laughs> minutes before we can actually call somebody so um so a group of experts uh kind of got together and really studied this uh and came up with um you know, just some some really great recommendations and some guidelines on uh, kind of how we should should classify shock so that we're all speaking the same language. Yeah, and I have two comments really quick. First off, it makes me feel a lot better <laughs> about my uh, lack of understanding of cardiogenic shock that this wasn't done until 2018. Makes me feel a lot better. Yeah, so no. they started working on it then, and it was officially published in 2019. <laughs> Right, um, but has has um, really kind of taken uh, taken cardiology by storm because it, you know, one one of the examples that they that they used um, was we do this we we speak a common language in other professions, right? So if you take uh, one of the examples that's used is if you're going to be an airline pilot, uh, actually, and I didn't, I guess I didn't really appreciate this to be an airline pilot, a, a professional airline pilot anywhere in the world, you have to speak English. And to be an air traffic controller anywhere in the world, you have to speak English because if you're flying into a foreign city, you're not going to know the language. So the common language uh, in aviation is English. And that's because it's a safety thing. So if, uh, you know, they, somebody comes in and they're flying in and they're speaking a different language or there's something that's left it uh, open to interpretation, people's lives can be at risk. Yet when we say, oh, a patient's is a patient in shock, yes or no, turns out that's not a really great question to ask. And we right. don't do this uh, in other professions, but uh, in cardiology up till 2019, uh, we really were kind of doing this. And we just didn't have a way to uh, communicate with each other or to anticipate potentially what was going to happen with the patient in the uh, immediate and long term future. Absolutely. Well, so as we uh, as we start to move into this, I do want to say to the listeners, um, you know, as Jason discussed, Sky, um, the uh, the society that he's talking about, and the uh, the group that got together to make these classifications. So what we are about to talk about is actually going to be the episode art for this episode. So whether you are uh, whether you found it on Instagram or whether you found it on whatever. Uh, podcast um, platform that you're using, you should be able to to reference uh, what we're about to talk about by just looking at the episode art. Yeah. And, and you can go all over the internet and, and find it. They've done a really good job of uh, kind mm. of classifying this 
um, not just in, you know, the, the different stages, but by letters and, um, you know, by, by different classifications that really flow and make sense. Absolutely. So, so keep with that. Uh, I really like the analogy of a house fire. That's, um, you know, that, that, that makes sense to me. So, so keep, keep us going with that. You know, you've talked about a matchbook before. So how, how does this, uh, how does this classification system work visually? It, it's a uh, pyramid, right? Yeah, it's a pyramid. So if we think about kind of the stages of what happens with a house fire is first of all, you have to have something that's going to light. So, you, you know, if you don't have a book of matches or you don't have a lighter, you're not going to start a fire. You know, of, of course, yeah, electrical fire and lightning and all that stuff. I get that. But if you're going to intentionally set a fire, uh, you got to <laughs> have that person that's gonna that just started saying it's, that. Shut up. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you need to go listen to another podcast about pyromaniacs or bedwetters or whatever that they tell you you're going to signs of that. Anyway, we digress. Um, yeah. So if you're going to, if, if a house is going to catch on fire, you have to have an ignition source. So if you, if you recognize an ignition source, you've now just recognized the potential, at least the house isn't on, there's no fire yet, but at least you recognize the potential that it could happen. Um, and then the next thing you'd have to do is you'd have to actually, actually have to light that match. Um, so you light the match and, uh, still not bad it's not causing any harm but we have definitely progressed and now that we have something that's burning um you know we can uh there there can be problems um and then uh maybe you throw the match away in in a waste paper basket and the basket catches on fire again not a huge deal but we are definitely setting stuff in motion uh next maybe the curtains catch on fire and so now we've got a problem because mm. this now has become um, we are right on the cusp of this being unmanageable. And if you were to take the odds, uh, once your curtains catch on fire, uh, the odds of your house burning down at that point of you being able to put it out is probably pretty low. And then after that, yeah, it's going to just be flames through the roof. And, uh, by then, unfortunately, no matter how much water you put on it, you may eventually put out the fire, but it's a total loss. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe you're able to rebuild, maybe you're able to um, function after that, but odds are uh, that you're not going to be able to do that. So those are kind of the stages. If we kind of think of of uh, the way that cardiac, uh, cardiogenic shock progresses, that those are kind of the stages. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's laid out by letter, right? So stage A is that matchbook. Yeah. So it's stage. So the way that they, that they've um, classified it is it's uh, a through E. So ABCDE mm -hmm. um, a is just at risk. So mm -hmm. this is the matchbook. So the um, uh, you know, this is the patient who has uh, they have an MI they're having, they're having a STEMI. Now you, you, if you take somebody's blood pressure and it's um, you know, 160 over 90 norm on a, on a, just a normal patient, you don't think anything of it. Yeah, maybe they got a little hypertension, but let's say it's 140 over 70. They're just coming for a blood pressure check or it's just a routine exam. It's 140 over 70. Not that big of a deal. But now they have a STEMI and their heart mm -hmm. and their blood pressure is 140 over 70. Well, maybe now we're thinking about them compensating or at least you're having a STEMI now. You are at, at high risk for potentially uh, developing cardiogenic shock. So where does this patient need to go? I don't think they need to go to a shock center. Um, not at this point, but at least we know uh, we're not going to leave this patient behind. We're not going to get a release on this patient. 
Right. Do you think that uh, that post cardiac arrest patients would fall into this category or the next category? Yeah, I think I think they would probably um, immediate post arrest. I think by definition, you're almost in shock. Um, okay. Because you just went from a blood pressure of zero to now your heart's pumping. And it's a good point. You know, whether it's uh, however it catches <laughs> up. Um, so I think these are the patients that are these are the ones that are either having a STEMI mm -hmm. um, or they have this acute on chronic heart failure. Um, we have lots of people that are walking around with ejection fractions of 30 percent, uh, 20 percent. Um, thankfully a lot of, many of these patients have, uh, ICDs, but a lot of these patients, you know, when your EF is 30% or less, your risk of going into cardiac arrest is very, very high. Mm. Um, so you've got these people that, um, that are in, have chronic heart failure, uh, and they're having a STEMI or, and they're having chest pain. One of the things we know is they're not gonna be able to compensate very well. So if their blood pressure starts to drop, they're not going to be able to compensate. So these patients are definitely at risk. Um, but they're not sick yet. Uh, the next one B is uh, is really just the, the beginning. So now we we've kind of progressed. We've lit the match. We are on our way. We have started down this road of this spiral. So we have clinical evidence of relative hypotension. You know, this is one of those things that. Uh, you know, when we talk about uh, the difference between um, advanced providers and, you know, who, where is a paramedic needed, where is an advanced provider needed, uh, it's not where the advanced skills, in, in my estimation, it's not where the advanced skills or medications are being given. It's, it's starting at these stages now. Relative hypotension, again, a blood pressure of 120 over 80, you know, we, we may say is normal. Is that normal? Well, not with a patient who lives with a blood pressure of 180. And not if their heart rate is 140. Exactly. Yeah. So, so now we have, we have tachycardia. Our blood pressure is normal because we're compensating well, but we're perfusing great. There's no hypoperfusion. Capillary refill is great. If you believe in that, um, peripheral <laughs> pulses are great. Um, you have, uh, oh, people, you have uh, great O2 sets. The, um, your, uh, your, your, your magical pulse ox is just pinging away oh, with the so red light on it. It's great. That's right. Always means there's nothing wrong with the patient. Nothing wrong. The sat uh, was, but wonderful. get room sats first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. So, so now though, we, we've started down this path. We're not in, sh we're not truly in shock yet. But we can progress very quickly to the next stage of C, class C, which is classic. So this is the one that we can all say, oh, there is a fire there. And now we're starting to go down the road of hypoperfusion. So mm. now our blood pressure went from 130. Now it's 110. Now it's 100. Um, and we have to do some intervention, right? So we're hovering around that 90 or below. Maybe we're given a little bit of... Uh, oppressors maybe we're i don't know maybe some people are given a, a little bit of volume hopefully not much or any um <laughs> conversation for another time but just what uh, your pressors are packaged in right <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but yeah so we've got uh, now we've got some pretty decent relative hypotension but at this point everyone would really agree yeah they're in shock but 
you know, they, they're just not, they're, they're not writhing in pain necessarily. They're not, they don't have an altered mental status likely. And so maybe we just don't take this as seriously, but mm. what's going to happen this is going to progress to the next stage of deteriorating. This is the one now where we, um, this is unfortunately where most cardiogenic shock patients start to get treated aggressively here in D, but at this point, our curtains are on fire. Um, so, so now we're trying to treat this aggressively. It's, it's pretty much like C, but now the hemodynamics are in the toilet. Um, and you're, you're pumping them full of pressors now and nothing's changing. So you're mm. maybe your, your, your systolic pressure is 70. You're maxed out on levofed on dopamine. Um, and your pressures just aren't changing. One of the things that I think we need to, uh, remind people of is, once you start one presser, your survival rate plummets. Mm. Once you start two pressers, it plummets even more. And by three pressers, um, it doesn't matter what your blood pressure is. If you're on two or three pressers, you're on uh, you're on death's door, regardless of what your blood pressure is. We we hear we we hear this from time to time of well, you know, why didn't we head down this road? Well, their blood pressure was stable on three pressers. Like, um, no, that's, that, that's not a thing. You can't be stable on three a number. Right. <laughs> right. And so this is really now where, um, in deteriorating specific hospitals, uh, now are going to be, are, are only going to be able to treat this patient. This is not just a PCI center, really. This is a PCI center that has, that has have the ability to do mechanical circulatory support. Uh, and then we move on from deteriorating to extremis. And this is uh, uh, extremis literally means at the point of death. Mm. And this is the patient that now is going into cardiac arrest. They've got CPR. Uh, maybe we're able to, maybe somebody's able to put them on ECMO uh, or other, you know, mechanical circulatory support, maybe a couple, you know, impella, two impellas, one in each ventricle. Jeez. Um, but this is really, we're just kind of throwing everything at this patient but at this point uh there is just so massive amounts of uh damage that's that's been done to the heart mm. uh probably a lot of um uh anoxic brain injury and even if this artery can be open if it's a STEMI or we can get this patient put on uh, mechanical circulatory support or full support like ECMO um the odds of them dying or odds of them living are uh, very very low Hmm. So, yeah. So that makes it even more special when patients do survive this. Correct. Just knowing Correct. that information. And, right. And, and typically, you know, it's kind of probably right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, we'll do a whole lot of other stuff on, on ECMO and talk about yeah. ECMO, but I just want to remind listeners that ECMO is not a therapy. ECMO allows the heart and lungs to rest. And if there's not anything there for them to come back to, then ECMO is mm. not going to not going to serve any purpose. Yeah, that's uh, so we get to these patients too late if they're so volume overloaded that their ventricle is is compressed uh, during uh, diastole. There's no blood flow there. Then there's really little that can be done. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know one commonality between this uh, classification system and types of shock that we have discussed before. It doesn't really matter what type of shock you're in. It's quicksand. The longer you're in it, most definitely the harder it is to pull you out of it. Right. Um, and I think this illustrates that very, very eloquently, honestly. 
how they they've broken it down like this yeah and so i think the you know like going back to the house fire stuff if you know everyone who ends up in extremis goes through these stages now some go through quicker than others and you know sometimes you know you're just going to have a a massive mi that blows out your ventricular septum and that's just that's your time there's just nothing you're going to be able to do to that but what we end up doing is um perhaps not anticipating this enough and getting the patient to the right place at the right time and then having teams that are going to assess uh, you know, kind of what what is the appropriate treatment? Not everybody has to go to, you know, not every STEMI has to be put on ECMO. Mm. Um, not every STEMI has to get an impella or or uh, a balloon pump or another mechanical or some sort of mechanical circulatory support. Uh, but what we end up doing is we end up doing things so late. So if we again, you show up when the flames are through the roof and then you flood it with water and the house, you know, burns to the ground, you can't say the problem was the water. You can't say, well, water right. doesn't work to put out fire. No, you can say, <laughs> we didn't get water there. If we could have gotten water there faster to prevent that from happening, then, you know, we could have done some good. Well said. Well said. I like that a lot. So in close, let's, um, let's close with this. Tell us more about um, what's coming down the pipe as far as um, the shock centers. And you were talking about patients that are in, you know, classifications of D and E. Um, is that going to be a national initiative or is that state level? What, what is that? Yeah. So there actually is a national initiative right now, um, based on the emergency cardiac care designations that happened in Georgia, uh, a few years ago, it's actually been adopted by the American medical association through a resolution, uh, of having these designated centers. Currently there are no designated shock centers, um, I would hope that in the future there would be designated that uh, these emergency cardiac care centers would exist all through the United States, uh, and then some of them would be dedicated uh, shock centers. And, you know, like with a lot of things, it's not about the procedure. Doing the procedure of mechanical circulatory support uh, is only a very small uh, part of the equation. You know, it's kind of like saying, going back to uh, is an ALS call uh, based on a skill or a uh, a medication given. No, I don't believe it is. And I don't believe a shock center is based on, can you put in an mm. impella or an ECMO? Great that has point. nothing to do with whether that's a good shock center. It's going to be, do you have the right team that recognizes when that therapy is needed? And then who's going to manage some of these patients for the next month or two, uh, you know, while they're, while they're in these, um, you know, in these dire uh, times why they're trying to recover and the best they're the having one person treat this patient and then having another person treat the patient the next day and undo everything that was just done um you know you know what happens when we get you know we get too many paramedics on scene it's about the same <laughs> thing when you get too many doctors in the same room right everyone's got their own opinion and uh we we have to be able to coordinate this and do this based on uh evidence um, and outcomes and be able to measure these outcomes. Like a lot of stuff we do, we don't measure the outcomes and we don't necessarily know exactly what is the right thing uh, that we need to do. So um, like we've done um, tremendous work in things like trauma. I mean, having a uh, designated centers, you know, one of the things level level one versus level two, again, not anything about therapies or surgeons, but you have the research side, you have some of the stuff that you're able to really, um, you know, you know, what do we do with blood in, you know, giving blood in the field? Well, 
Some say you should, some say you shouldn't. The answer is we don't really know. Um, so we have to study this kind of stuff. The ones that are doing it are, are showing great, great results. We need to be able to show if we, if we bypass um, hospital A or B to get to hospital C that can treat shock, does that change outcomes? Um, you know, we're, we're not talking about a lot of patients here. If you figure, uh, if everyone listening, think about how many STEMIs you personally run in a 12-month period. I would think, uh, you know, some of the busier places that I've known and some of the, the people that I've, you know, you're, you're as a busy um, service, one paramedic may only be running a handful of STEMIs a year, which means statistically you're going to be running one cardiogenic shock a year at best. Uh, yeah, if um, that. yeah. We're not talking about, we're not talking about a lot of patients, but we are talking about those that are the most at risk. How do we treat these patients as a true system of care? Not just... I, you know, go back to a pet peeve. Uh, I took him to this emergency room so that I could, so, so they could stabilize them before transporting them. Like, no, that's, you know, it's like saying you're going to take a cardiac arrest to someplace to, uh, you know, to stabilize them before you get them to a defibrillator. Like, no, you, you've <laughs> got to get them to the defibrillator. That is the stabilization. That is the definitive care. We don't take STEMIs to non-PCI facilities anymore. I hope we don't because we know what the definitive care is. Maybe we need to be thinking about this. What do we do with cardiac arrest? What do we do with cardiogenic shock? Do we take these to specialty areas? Now, that's also, you know, that's it's an easy answer in a metropolitan area. That's exactly uh, what does that right. mean um, out in the, you know, in very rural areas? I think we just have to take this on and understand what the problem is and then come up with ways to identify within geographical areas on how best to treat these patients. Awesome. Awesome. All right, man. Well, I think that's uh that's a pretty good spot to close this one. Um, folks, uh, if you have any questions, you know how to hit us up. You can hit us up on our social media. You can also shoot us an email, but uh, like we've said, this is uh this is the first episode of many talking about cardiogenic shock. So Jason, appreciate it, man. Well done. Let's do it again. Well, not this, not this one again, but another <laughs> one. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.